Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. The Ides of March are upon the British in South Africa as they continue to chase the ghost generals, Smuts, Delaray, Bayers, De Wet, across a cooling landscape that had begun its Southern Hemisphere autumn in 1901. This week we'll probe an American invention in Cuba called the Blockhouse Chain, as well as details of how journalist John Tengu Jubavu was publishing pro-Boer commentary against the wishes of both the British and most black intellectuals. We'll return to his experiences later. The tactic of building a chain of forts is ancient, but the most recent examples before the Boer War came from the American War in Cuba. But this campaign had demonstrated that forts by themselves could not prevent guerrilla action, and Lord Kitchener, who was beginning to build them in South Africa, knew that full well. Kitchener's strategy, therefore, was to integrate the function of the fixed defensive units in fortified blockhouses with mobile attacking units on the so-called drives. These began, as we know, in January 1901. I've spoken about them in previous podcasts, as the British tried herding or hustling the Boers into smaller areas of felt so that they could be overcome. Kitchener believed if the country could be divided into small areas by fortified lines, the Boers in each may be prevented from crossing to the next. His chessboard of maps across his HQ walls featured these regions with the addition of mobile columns that would be moved quickly by train from chess block to chess block while the blockhouses and barbed wire began to string out across the wide open plains. His predecessor, Lord Roberts, had started by setting up lines of fortified camps along the railway lines, which the Boers, like General Christian de Vett, enjoyed attacking intermittently as they were loaded with ammunition and food, as well as other supplies. De Vett and other commanders were also now expert at blowing up railway lines and rolling stock, another reason for the British to build these forts. By June the previous year, 1900, the work began on a series of trenches reinforced by stone walls called sangars and rimmed by barbed wire, which ran all the way from Cape Town to Johannesburg, a distance of around 1,400 kilometers. Detachments of men were camped at intervals to defend each section. Then the British built strong blockhouses at each main railway bridge over the rivers, which were two stories high and had a mount on the roof for a machine gun. Entrances to these blockhouses was by ladder through a door around eight foot off the ground. There were loopholes in the lower walls to allow the garrison to fire at ground level, a kind of tiny castle isolated on the felt. Kitchener needed more of the same, but they were expensive and time-consuming to construct. One thousand pounds each and three months to build. That's a lot of time and money. With industrialization, though, in full swing in England, the British preferred a cheaper option, and that was corrugated iron. It's the preferred method of building shacks and homes in South Africa to this day, and houses across the country sport corrugated iron roofs. The prototype was built in the eastern Transvaal town of Nelspreet in January of 1901 by a contractor from Portuguese East Africa, Mozambique as we know it. Supports for walls were made of two rows of wooden posts embedded in the ground around two feet apart to form a rectangle of 10 by 15 feet. Inner and outer skins of corrugated iron were fitted to the posts and the space between these two layers of metal filled in with stones and sand. Loopholes were made by cutting openings in the walls and fitting metal plates between them while a corrugated iron roof completed the building. Remember the Boers had no artillery left and this method would not have worked had they still been carrying their creosote guns, 
the small blockhouses would have been shot through by the shells. So fabrication was the answer to the cost challenge after Kitchener did the math and realized he needed thousands of these buildings across South Africa. After the initial design by the Portuguese had proven the concept, Kitchener turned to the royal engineers. Major S.R. Rice rose to the challenge and a month later in February he had come up with a plan for a circular blockhouse which could easily be fabricated in sections and put together where needed along the railway line. It also cost £44 instead of the £1,000 of the prototype and in an instant made these strange structures viable. That price rapidly dropped to £16 when built in large numbers which then satisfied the war office. They were still round and had two layers of corrugated iron and he used shingle between where rocks and sand were unavailable but he did away with the wooden supports, the wood was easily damaged by bullets and South Africa is not blessed with many forests. Major Rice also used a corrugated iron roof that was round giving the name to the pepperpot blockhouses of South Africa. Each fort was staffed by six or seven men, stores of food were kept in the space under the roof. Each blockhouse was surrounded by a wall two feet high, then circular and radiating trenches were dug between the forts and stone sangars erected above these, allowing the men to fight outside if necessary. But that wasn't all. In a precursor to the trenches and barbed wire of the First World War, the British concocted a Gordian knot of barbed wire between the forts, cunningly designed to be impregnable. These were not simple fences, but a mass of protective obstructions fashioned into a carefully calculated complicated matrix, strengthened by several strands of thick wire impervious to normal wire cutters, then held together by metal stays anchored into the ground with heavy sandbags. Bells were attached to the fences which would sound a warning if the fence was touched at night. Something like a metallic spider's web where the spiders were the sentries lying awake listening for the bells. Loaded rifles covered some segments which fired automatically via trip wires. The field of fire between blockhouses was also planned in minute detail and with mathematical precision. The blockhouses were in a kind of wave pattern and the loopholes angled away from each other as one fort would fire away from its neighbour. Again, the First World War machine gun cross-hatching field of fire partly originated in this fixed position design. When these blockhouses opened up together, they would sweep the surrounding area with bullets like a flood of death making it virtually impossible for the Boers to slip between the forts. Interestingly, sitting inside one of these blockhouses was a General Fuller, who was to fight in the First World War and became the most famous advocate of tank warfare. He literally took the blockhouse and put it on tracks. However, at this point, he was stuck inside a non-mobile corrugated iron oven. He described the monotonous life led by these poor blockhouse soldiers. Men became jumpy sitting inside these dark interiors where their only sunlight filtered through little loopholes. Tempers frayed quickly and at night the soldiers saw Boers everywhere. This led to an incident later linked to another Boer war invention, the British automatic flare. These were triggered like the guns and bells by the barbed wire being moved. So on one particular night, Fuller explains how a small animal, probably a buck of some sort, wandered into the fence, a flare automatically shot up into the air and led to the soldiers in the blockhouses opening up 
and down the line for more than 100 miles. That must have been a sight to behold on a quiet night on the felt. Automation and trigger-happy soldiers continue to be a major headache for the military and security experts around the world. So again, some things just never change. Back in Pretoria, Kitchener was excited. He looked at his maps, then he looked at the costs, down from 1,000 to just 16 pounds a blockhouse, and immediately ordered the construction to begin along the railway line, first between Port on the Portuguese-East African border and Kapmerden, east of Pretoria. Later, Kitchener would have these built along the Cape to Johannesburg line, but that really only began in June of 1901. And by the end of 1901, Kitchener had 50,000 men guarding 8,000 blockhouses, which turned the project into a significant building program. These structures feature in later podcasts, as we'll hear. While Kitchener was plotting his blockhouses in early 1901, black journalist John Tengu Jabavu had become one of the most despised writers in South Africa, at least according to the English. He had consistently warned against colonialism and imperialism and used the Boer War to spread his message as a member of the black intelligentsia. He wrote in favour of the Boers, which seems counterintuitive. After all, he knew full well that the English were liberal, or at least seemingly, and the Boers were highly conservative when it came to matters of race. As with everything South African, if you simplify too much, the nuance of events can pass you by in a blur of bias. This remains a touchy subject. John Tengu Jabavu was born in 1859 near the Methodist Mission School at Hildan district of the Eastern Cape. Although both his parents were illiterate, Jabavu went on to achieve academic honours. Starting elementary school at the age of 10, he excelled in literature and mathematics and repeatedly won the quarterly academic competitions at his school. In 1875, he received a teacher's certificate after his father paid for the exam by selling one of the family's valued ploughing oxen. This achievement was followed by yet another distinction. In 1883, when Jabavu passed matric, he became one of only three people within the black community at that time with a matric, the others being Percy Frames and Simon Shiklali. He was 15 when he took his teacher's certificate exam and became one of the youngest teachers in the district at Somerset East. He then became a preacher and found great pleasure in reading good books and daily newspapers, then apprenticed himself to a newspaper office and did his work after school hours. He began to write articles for some newspapers which were favorably commented upon, and that motivated him still further, and between 1877 and 1881 he taught in Somerset East, but at the same time worked during the pre-dawn hours as a printer's assistant on a local newspaper. Eventually, he founded Imvo Zabansundu, which means Black Opinion, in 1884, and opened his office in King Williamstown in 1886, still only 24 years old. Remarkably, that paper was known and read throughout South Africa within a short space of time. So, why did one of the most respected black writers of the day use his publications to advance the cause of the Boers? Don't forget that at that stage, and counter to present-day revisionist thinking, blacks did have the right to property and to vote in the Cape Colony. It was limited, but the truth is, the rights existed. The concept of one man, one vote, though, was still distant, but moderate black politicians at the time believed the Boers were just slave owners and the British appeared a better option. 
They had banned slavery after all and had allowed blacks who became property owners to vote, which appeared to be part of their worldwide British civilizing campaign. I know that in 2019, this concept is discordant with our world and its ways and our historical hindsight, but just bear with me. John Tengu Jubabu thought better of this relationship with the British. His support of the Boers was not based on any misconception about their motivation when it came to race relations. One of the main reasons the Boers had left the Cape in the 1830s was the English banning slavery, which the Boers regarded as an invasive law, counter to their belief that they were the chosen people of God and were superior in every way to blacks, where the Bible said they were children of Ham and the Boers, well, they were the Israelites of Africa seeking a promised land. The black elite of South Africa were also highly aware that British Prime Minister Lord Salisbury had said in Parliament that There must be no doubt that the precaution will be taken for the kindly and improving treatment of those countless indigenous races of whose destiny, I fear, we have been too forgetful. Grand words indeed, which Tengu Jabavu did not believe, and regarded the British actions in South Africa as a grave injustice. Most members of the black intelligentsia in 1899 supported the British military intervention, but not Jabavu. He was a member of the Mfengu people and edited the paper Zabansundu, which was, as I said, published in King Williamstown by then. Jababu was never afraid to speak out about his views, even though these went against the majority of his own people and remained critical of the British policy in South Africa throughout the war. He argued in a long editorial in Imvo during the first week of war in October 1899 that the British government had succumbed to the influence of an irresponsible war lobby and that the Boers had been called upon at a moment's notice to make their conservative state a kind of Boer utopia. For Jabavu, he saw it as quintessentially their representation of all that was unfair, and yet the British were supposed to be motivated by fairness. This was a contradiction, and the hypocritical moves to attack the Boers inflamed his thinking. Jabavu was also linked to the all-white South African party of John X. Merriman and J.W. Sauer in the Eastern Cape, who wanted reconciliation between whites. That did not mean reconciliation between blacks and whites, so a contradiction. He supported and formed an electoral pact with the Afrikaner Bont in the Cape, which was a party that had made its lifelong mission to eliminate voting rights for Africans. Bont politicians had felt disadvantaged by African voters who consistently and en masse voted for the English-speaking liberal politicians, therefore shoving the Afrikaner interests aside. This was, you have to say, a quizzical position for a black editor, and not easily reconcilable. The Boer republics of the Transvaal and the Orange Free State were known for their harsh treatment of blacks, yet were being supported by a black nationalist South African? The English-supporting Eastern Province Herald newspaper accused Jabavu of having embraced Krugerism with both arms, and the editors wrote, To find the docile Imvo now turning to lick the hand that wielded the shambok is more amazing than amusing. While puzzling, Jabavu considered his stance on the Anglo-Boer War to be part of his journalistic duty to speak straight from his heart. Jababu's support for the Afrikaner Bont alienated him from the broader black leadership. 
The split within the black middle class culminated in the formation of a rival newspaper, Izwi Labantu, in 1897, an unashamed African newspaper that lent its support to the emerging African nationalist cause. Its very title, The Voice of the People, suggested a more militant predisposition than the moderately titled Native Opinion. The founders of Izwe, including Reverend Rubusana, were pivotal in the initiatives that eventually led to the formation of the South African Native National Congress in 1912. The SANC was to become the ANC. Chibabwe refused to be part of the SANC, objecting to its racial exclusivity and formed his own non-racial organization instead, the South African Races Congress. So, during the Boer War and after months of falling foul of the authorities, John Tengu Jibabu's Imvo Zamansundu was shut down by the military in August 1901 and it did not reappear until four months after peace in May 1902, financially in a much weaker position. Certainly he was and remains an enigma. Jibabu's differences with other black leaders resurfaced later over the Land Act of 1913. He supported the discriminatory legislation. Every other black leader opposed it because it sought to limit the proportion of land inhabited by the majority black population. While his position with regard to political matters may have been fraught, he redeemed himself, though, through his legacy in tertiary education. During World War I, he led a campaign that culminated in the establishment of the very first black university in South Africa in 1916, the University of Fort Hare. And as part of the governing council of Fort Hare, he insisted that the college admit women, which was revolutionary to say the least at a time when most women around the world were not allowed into tertiary education, let alone have the vote. During the Boer War, both the Boer and British commanders were fearful that black South Africans would use the civil war to attack and overthrow white rule generally, which was a complete misreading of the situation at the time. Black groups were not cohesive, and there was not a single block of people because of the color of their skin. It was more complex than that, with most leaders seeking political solutions, having realized long ago that military opposition to the gun was hopeless. As we'll see, uprisings occurred, but they were based in regions not the entire length and breadth of the country. There are also fascinating stories where chiefs used the so-called white war to empower themselves and to grow their own stature. These were advanced social societies using political and military involvement in an astute way, not the present thinking that they lived in some kind of perfect childlike nirvana, merely victims. That simplifies, of course, and is an insult to the memory of the black leaders of the past and a crass, uninformed simplification. But I digress. While Jababu was fulminating and fuming about British actions and the English were furiously trying to condemn his writing while Kitchener was staring at his maps, imagining a country of blockhouses, barbed wire and columns trapping Boers, General Christian de Vett had an epiphany. He decided to break up the commandos still further and to concentrate in regions, just as Lord Kitchener was doing. So he looked at his own map of the Free State and broke it into six parts. And each small-scale raids would be planned by each commander without his intervention for the most part. This reduced the chance of English spies finding out about their plans. These commando districts will be centered on Kronstadt, Freda, Wimberg, Borsov, Philippopolis, and southern Bloemfontein. All this new arrangement of our forces made it impossible for great battles to be fought, he admitted later. 
It offered us the opportunity of frequently engaging the enemy in skirmishes and inflicting heavy losses upon them than otherwise would have been the case. But his losses grew larger too, as Kitchener's drives led to more Boer commandos either surrendering or being caught in the encirclement policy. He also realized another important fact. The Boers could no longer control their British prisoners. We had no St. Helena, Ceylon or Bermuda, whether we could send them, he wrote. His men had to release their prisoners, who would soon be back fighting again. De Vett's humour at this point improved, albeit darkly. The fact that we fought throughout the Free State in small detachments put the English to some trouble, for they felt themselves obliged to discover a vocabulary of names to apply to us. Some of these were used by Lord Roberts earlier in May 1900, which included the following phrases for Boers. Sniping bands. Brigands. Guerrillas. Guerrilla chiefs. De Vett was indignant. He hated the word guerrilla and raged about the fact that had England captured New York or St. Petersburg, Berlin, Paris or Amsterdam and the war had continued in these countrysides, surely the English wouldn't call these men guerrillas? It was in this frame of mind that De Vett arrived in Senegal near Bloemfontein and requested a meeting with Louis Boerter. The British had withdrawn from this Boer town, strangely enough. Boerter was also about to send a note to Lord Kitchener that the terms of peace were not acceptable to the Boers after their meeting in Middleburg earlier in March. De Vett and Boerter met at Freire later on the 24th and had a long discussion about the future of the war. We parted in firm determination that whatever happened, we would continue the war writes the vet. And continue it did. Next week, more from Denise Rates, who joins up with a bunch of renegades who are all on foot, desperate for horses. Don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes and you can send me a message through the website abwarpodcast.com or directly on Twitter at Des Latham. So until next week, goodbye. <laughs> Transfer.